Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. Thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got, and that is your time. Believe me when I say I'm super grateful that you've chosen to invest whatever time you are allocating and whatever you're doing right now, whether it's walking the dog or washing the dishes, to putting us in your earballs and improving your station in life. Today, I know why you've clicked through because you potentially are thinking, where do I fit into mobility or maybe where does mobility and electric vehicles and the rise of electrification of everything fit into my business? I'm in the solar industry. I'm in the storage industry. Well, today's guest, Matt LaDuke, is going to help open your eyes to what's happening in both short haul, long haul, how electrification is changing the way we think about energy. And Matt is no stranger to renewables. Many of you have probably heard Matt's name. He's a 15 plus year veteran in renewables and has worked for some of the industry mega companies that you'll recognize. But he's also been mentored and worked alongside some of the names that I have personally followed and admired and have gotten the opportunity to interview here on the podcast like Andrew Beebe. And he has a treasure trove of wisdom. He's overseen more than $5 billion, with a B, dollars in transactions in EPC, O&M, and long-term investments. He has experience leading transactions, both from utility all the way down to CNI and all the way back to, if you remember this, PowerGuard. Yep, the PowerLite product will have a funny story about how PowerGuard pulled Matt LaDuke into the solar industry. If you like these kinds of conversations, then believe me, you are in the right place. We've got more than 450 conversations just like this with leaders, entrepreneurs in the clean economy who are helping pull this industry forward. Really special thanks to everyone who has been a supporter for all this time and to our sponsors who help make this show free. To you, you can find out more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. But you know what? For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, well, I know that if you are anything like me, and I presume that you sort of are because I sort of built this podcast to help myself understand this industry better, then you click through because you just know who Matt LaDuke is and you're wondering what the heck he's doing next. Well, you're going to get your answers today. And I have long wanted Matt to come on. I had hoped that it would be when he was wearing the next era badge. I'm kind of glad that we get a chance to look back on that day and talk about what he's doing next. Matt LaDuke, before anything else, I just want to say welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Nico. Good to be here. Man, good to have you here as well. I want to give a hat tip to our mutual friend, Topher Wood, one of the silent warrior kingpins in the industry that is just doing unbelievable things with Forum and uh, all the different businesses I won. And just like, what a, what a, what a historical figure he will turn out to be. And I believe that you as well will. But you know, you weren't always uh, a CEO. You weren't always a uh, sort of top of the, of the totem pole person in the industry. In fact, you got your start in, in business the way so many of the folks that are building this clean economy have, and that's with your boots in the mud and your work gloves on. 
do I understand right that you grew up in a construction family? I did. Yeah. My, my, my old man was a union foreman in the Bay Area. My, my brother's a pipe fitter in the Bay Area. I was a heavy equipment operator. And before I got into solar, my, the, the last job I had was putting pipes underground on the west shore of Oahu. So I grew up in the trades and was excited to get into a trade that uh, also had a great impact. And so that's how I found renewables and solar. I'm curious because I also grew up in kind of a blue collar family and a blue collar sort of middle income family building uh, things and seeing how an idea can go from a plan to, you know, keys in the owner's hand. What was conversation with, for your family that has have been in the trades all of your life? What was that like around the dinner table uh, as a kid, maybe your early teens? Well, I guess my, you know, my dad was in the trades. I don't think he particularly loved being in the trades. There's a lot of people in the trades who love being in the trades. And I think my yeah. dad was one of those guys who wished he would have gotten himself in the office sooner. He ended up um, at the county of Sonoma later in his career um, after he was a, a foreman and a superintendent and then found his way into project management. And he really, really liked being in the office. So a lot of the conversation with the trades was, you know, I'm glad you're working with your hands, son, but uh, you need to get through school and get yourself into the office because it, it can beat you up a little bit and it beat him up um, physically a lot. So I, I'm glad that I had a chance to do it, um, and, and work with my hands. And, 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 uh, I'm, I'm, I'm also glad that I didn't have to beat up my body, my body, like the way my father did. You know, I, I love your story. One of the things that, uh, we have to thank your dad for, what's your dad's name? Barry. Barry, Barry, if you're listening, I want to say thank you because this industry owes you a huge gratitude, a debt of gratitude. Cause he came home one day and said, I'm on this project and there's this there's this stuff that they made out of sand and these guys have no idea what they're doing. You should really jump into this industry because you've got some chops. Tell me about that, how, how he sort of pulled you into the modern era of electric generation. Yeah. I mean, so is yeah, Santa Rosa uh, is where I grew up. I was, I was born in Oakland. We moved up to Santa Rosa. And when, I, when my old man was a, a project manager at the County of Sonoma, his, his buddy, John, was running a project with all people Powerlight. Um, and he says, you know, there's this goofy thing with, with solar panels on top of foam and they're putting them, and they're up on, laying the them on the roof, man. <laughs> and he says, they're laying them on the roof. He says, they don't have any idea what's going on, but they're growing like crazy. And the team is really fun. You should, uh, you should go talk to John, uh, his friend, John Hubiak. And John was working with Renee Solari, um, at, at Powerlight, who, who's in the, you know, I think she's actually still with Sun Power. She, she helped break me in there. And I, and I got her on the phone and I, and I got her on the phone and she said, okay, you come down and meet, you should meet Tyrone Hardy. And I walked into the Powerlight office. I mean, you know, and keep in mind, I mean, the, the, the most luxurious thing I'd ever seen was, you know, a construction trailer um, with some donuts and some coffee. And I walked into the Powerlight office at, at Ashby and San Pablo in Berkeley. And, you know, there was an espresso machine. There was a, there was a Zen room. There is, you know, dogs running around the office, solar panels for tables. And I was like, holy smokes, like, this is, this is incredible. It's like something out of a movie. And it was like it captivated me. Like I, it was something I, I absolutely had to do, um, and they absolutely didn't hire me for months. But I, I basically you know, wore Tyrone down into submission until finally one day they they offered to make me a, a site manager for a power guard project. And it actually, was over at the Moscone Center on that one of those first projects. No way! Uh, was, you was were my a first site manager for the Moscone Center. Well, I was a, I was a, I was a, a helping hand for the site manager at Moscone, a guy named Jamie Seidel, a great colleague of mine yeah. at SFPSC now. But uh, yeah, that was that was the first time I set foot on a roof and and got my hands on some power guard. And yeah, it was I was compelled. It was you know I, I knew that I wanted to stick with construction. It was you know it was where I wanted to go. Is what I knew. Is what I felt comfortable with. And I 
the fact that you could combine that with something that was obviously you know, meaningful and innovative, um, it just felt, you know, it felt like the thing that I had to do. So there's a couple of things I, I want to stay on the Powerlight stories for a second. They didn't know even like the lengths that you were going to to get this job, right? Tell me a little bit, because I think that a lot of folks can appreciate how hard you worked. You just knew this is where you wanted to be. Can you tell us, talk about how hard you worked to get this job? Yeah, I mean, it was it was really the only job I wanted. I love that, dude. Like I can, I can see the emotion right now. You like reflecting back on this 15 years ago. Yeah, it was the only job I wanted. And I, you know, you, you try to walk that line that, you know, as you, as you, as you sell things later in life, um, in whatever way you try to walk that line with, with being persistent, but not being annoying. Um, I, I probably went into the annoying side of that a little bit more than often than not, but I call, I called, I left messages. Um, some were returned, some were not. I, I conveniently found myself in the neighborhood in Berkeley quite a bit and was offering to stop by, which was, you know, an hour and a half from my house in Santa Rosa. This is before you got the job. This is before I got the job. Like, knock, knock. I'm in the neighborhood. Just wanted to see yeah. if you're still there. Just wanted to see if, if you're around. I could just stop by and just kind of let you know what I was doing. But, you know, it was just, uh, it was just a thing. It was a thing that I wanted to do and the energy and, you know, it, it was, it was really, really cool. Yeah. And I, I think you probably worked for Brones, right? Mark Brones. I did. I worked for Brones. I mean, I, the, the the sales guy that I spent the most time with at Powerlight was none other than Mr. Marco Garcia. No, um, dude. Yeah, it's yeah. the first time you met Marco. Uh, the first time I met Marco was in a conference room. He would never remember this, even though he and I have spent many, many, many hours all over the world together. Was I was in a conference room that was, of course, a conference room you know, made of, of solar panels at Powerlight. <laughs> Sugar style. And, yeah, and Marco, yeah. We were, we were looking at some some drawings and and Marco came in and you know there's a a, a genuine uh, infectiousness to the energy that Marco has you know there's there's it's just you can't you can't get past his charisma like it's just right there in front of you and yeah. it's just it, it, you know I, I remember it as plain as day I remember you know the way he talks with his hands you know the the, the, mm. the whole thing uh, and meeting him and just seeing that kind of energy I, I'd actually never seeing that level of excitement out of anybody in a professional setting. <laughs> yep. So uh, that's, that's where I met Marco. Marco and I ended up working together um, at EI Solutions, at SunTech, oh, yeah. many, many, many times over the years. Um, and I kind of ended up being his technical, technical guy that he would help uh, sell a, quite a bit of projects. So I was lucky to get to spend a lot, a lot of time with Marco and to see you know, his attention to detail and his charisma and everything. So. So you did site management, but you also effectively were like the construction guy that came in to bridge the gap between technical field stuff and the customer, right? To help Mark and Marco bridge that gap, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was somewhat that glamorous, but it was also a lot of, you know, organize the crane lifts, get the permits, yeah. get the streets shut down. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, um, make sure that we had the right rigging. Um, we would you know, bring all the rigging. The rigging for solar panels was very different than traditional crane rigging. Yeah, and so it was. It was a lot of making sure that that happened, um, making sure that safety was set up on the roof, that we had you know tie off points, and that we had all the oh, setbacks. Yeah. And, and then you know, and then ultimately you know, a lot of what we took pride in. Uh, there, there was there was a few of us, Chris Edgett and Dylan Anderson, was just making sure that we also talked to our customer. Um, yeah, you know, I think we we were all pretty uh, pretty aware that that we weren't paying the bills, um, and so making sure that the customer knew what we were doing, where we were going to be, when we were going to be making noise, when we needed the power to get shut off. So it was definitely, there was some of the bridge between the customer, but a lot of it was just, you know, getting things done, making sure that things got up on the roof. This is the thing that I feel that there's a generation of folks trying to come into the renewables industry 
who don't get it in that like the need to really understand at a core level, not just how power works, but how all this stuff comes together. Like I look at you running what you're doing now and the work that you've done. I look at Adam Larner over at Primer G. Like these are people who have put in the time with work boots and work gloves and line drawings. And like you're on a site walk right now as the CEO of a company, right? Like you're traveling, doing the work. And that is one of the things that as I think about the us versus them dichotomy between us and the oil and gas industry that a lot, I think a lot of folks in the oil and gas industry came up through like you and I and Adam did came up through the ranks, came up through the field. And there's a lot of folks that are listening to this right now and they're wondering what the shortcut is. Well, the shortcut is do the work. <laughs> Your shortcut is you understand how this all comes together and then you can sit in the in the captain's chair uh, like like Matt's doing now. Well, couple of questions that I have for you that are slightly divergent from your career path. The first is, what did you always think that you would do, but you ended up like career wise that you ended up not doing? Well, I guess, you know, probably going back to when I was in college, I thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. I played. I no played way. Div- what, yeah. What I played division. I was a pitcher. I pitched for the University of Hawaii. So I was a, I was a, a mediocre division one player. And, you know, I think that it was there at the University of Hawaii. Uh, I arrived and it quickly realized, you know, in pretty short order that I was going to need to get a job after college that didn't involve baseball. You know, you, you get to a, a place like that and you get to a, a level of that, that you just realize that there's you know, people who are just physically talented in a way that you weren't ever going to be. And so that's when I set, I set my sights on the construction management world. But, you know, as a kid, I, I, I had dreams of, of standing on the mound for the Oakland A's and, uh, and being a pro ball player. But, uh, you know, there was a, there was a lack of talent issue there that got in the way. <laughs> Did you play with anyone who's de- who went on to play in the big leagues? Oh yeah, one of my teammates, um, you know, as a kid growing up, Johnny Johnny Gomes was. Uh, if you remember no that way. sports that sports illustrated uh, cover <laughs> where he was, you know, flexing his arms on second base, and after they won the World Series, and he was also the one that put the World Series trophy on on the Boston uh, Marathon finish line. I had a chance to play with a few other guys, but yeah, you know, Johnny was one of the closest, and yep, you know, was as good of a teammate when we were kids as he was apparently in the big leagues too. He was always known as the best locker room guy. So I, I, but I had a chance to play with a lot of guys who made it to the big leagues. Um, it was pretty cool. That's special. Yeah, That is special. Well, another question that I, I don't think I've ever asked this in this way before, but I find that, that often because you have such a plethora of work experience, we all go through that one or two things that invariably doesn't show up on your LinkedIn. So my question to you is what's not on your LinkedIn profile and what did you learn from that experience? Despite the fact that you don't want to talk about it. <laughs> uh, I left Powerlight and I didn't go straight to EI solutions to work mm-hmm. for Andrew Beebe and Joe Banca and then Marco Garcia later on. I actually left Powerlight to go to a roofing company that will remain nameless. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and I went there because the money was good. And I was a young guy and I needed some extra money. And uh, they, they, it was a big raise. And I, I got a company truck and, you know, to a kid you know, who grew up in the, in the trades, uh, you know, getting a company truck was somewhat of a, a milestone in your career. I'm, best, I'm guessing you were making like 20 bucks an hour at Powerlight and they probably doubled that. That's right. Exactly. It was, it was double the money. Um, yeah, I was living in San Francisco and a truck. Yeah. And, and, and uh, your dad's yeah. like, heck yeah, son, you should totally <laughs> jump on that. You're young. Well, what was funny is that, you know, I was so compelled to get into renewables, not for the money. I was compelled to get into renewables because it was going to be a thing. And I got compelled to get into this because I needed some extra bucks. That's a great lesson. Yeah. And it's, 
you know, it didn't take very long. It, it took a couple months of being around. You know, there's some great guys that I worked with in that company, but you know, the, some of the management was just let's, let's put it, there. There was not a lot of um, I, I was not in sync. Scruples. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I needed to get out of there. It was a couple months, and I was like, you know, I you, you have that 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 feeling in your gut when it's just not right. Mm-hmm. You know, in a lot of things, and the feeling in my gut was this is this is not gonna, this is not right. And it's not going to get any better. So, what did you do in that moment? Put me in that moment where you are mid twenties. You feel like, ooh, I may have made a, a, a tactical navigational error on my career road. I did something that was, in retrospect, you know, a very, very poor decision. I just quit, um, kind of sight unseen, and just left without a, a safety net and without you know any money in the bank really either. And you know, just felt like this was this was something I did not want to do. This was not who I was. This is not who I wanted to be with. Um, this is not where I'm going, and I cannot continue down this road. And so I left, and I was very, very happy as I was driving away. I can remember, you know, going across the San Mateo Bridge uh-huh. and, and and feeling just thrilled that I wasn't doing that anymore, and then thinking, you know, yeah. how the hell am I going to make money? And what's the next phone call that you made? The next phone call I made was a Joe Banga, um, who was the old VP mm-hmm. of construction at Powerlight, who is definitely a mentor of mine, just you know, a, a really remarkable person, and 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 did a lot for me in my life. I said, Joe, I messed up. Like I, I, you know, I, wow. I, I, I think, uh, I don't think I should have left solar and remind us how old you are at this point. 25, 26. Yeah. I'm 25 years old at this time. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and I'm like, you know, I, I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have left. And, and, yeah. and Joe said, yeah, you probably shouldn't have, but we should go meet for coffee. Joe turned out lo and behold, Joe had just left power light himself. And the whole, you know, that whole act of kind of quitting sight unseen at that roofing company led me to Joe back to Joe. Joe and I sat down for coffee, said we have, I'm, I'm leaving. I just joined a company. This guy, Andrew Beebe, runs it. It's called EI Solutions. It's a company, you know, EI Solutions actually bought Prevalent Power, which was Arno Harris's old, you know, company. And Joe said, we got a big project for Google and you should run it. It was, at the time, it was a 1.8 megawatts, which, you know, you know, back in, back in those days was as, as, Mind-numbing. as big as they can get. And I was yeah. like, holy smokes, I could, I could run a 1.8 megawatt project at, at Google and and I was lucky. You know, I, I, I left that company. I made one phone call. I landed on my feet. Um, I got to meet Andrew. And Let me pause yeah. there for a second. So we've had Andrew on. I definitely got to get Joe on the show. But what I want to actually circle back to is a question. If you had not left Powerlight, would Joe have been able to, to like poach you or pull you out of Powerlight? No. Holy crap, dude. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Fortuitous yeah. path for sure. Okay. So, well, if you want to hear the story of of Andrew Beebe and what Matt was just talking about, which is another EI Solutions, another like Marco part, Marco, it's in his story, which is episode two of Suncast, by the way, or Andrew Beebe, which is in the hundreds, uh, you should go back and listen to those episodes. So, we won't dig too much into EI Solutions. But, needless to say, like you mentioned, Arno Harris, like founder of Recurrent, like some of the folks that are like the literal forefathers of this industry in terms of like what I would consider to be solar 2.0, like when we really started to scale, came through PowerLight, SunPower, EI Solutions, Recurrent, Nextera. How did you see your career begin to evolve at that point? Like you're no longer this peon who is trying to fight his way into the industry. Yeah, I mean, the Google project was, you know, a huge moment for me personally. I mean, just, just, you know, it was it was big and it was public and it was complicated and it, it kind of marked you know a step up 
in the industry, you know, just from a professionalism standpoint, it, you know, it put the, it put solar on the map quite a bit. Yeah. I got to meet, you know, you know, the founders of Google. I remember Thomas Friedman came out for a half a day and wanted to walk the site. And I got to, and I, and, and I, you know, just basically read the, I read the Lexus in the olive tree. And, and, you, know, and you said to Thomas, a, look, if you looked down on the roof and you said, look, Thomas, up here, it's kind of hot, flat and crowded, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Is that what you said to him? <laughs> I, was, I, I was more just trying to not, you know, tumble over my own words with him. I mean, I was, I was, I was pretty starstruck, um, but it was, yeah, you just get this perspective and, you know, obviously meeting Andrew um, and Bill Gross, the founder of Idea Lab, and just, you know, meeting people at this time, you know, you took, it took my brain, you know, as a, as a kid, you know, from Santa Rosa who had grown up in the trades, and I started to see a much bigger, bigger world, right? I mean, just, you know, through that Google project, through the people I met through that, through the scale of that project, you know, you started to see like, holy smokes, look, this, this might be a lot bigger than we think it's going to be. And, uh, and I, yeah, I'm very grateful to Google for doing that project. And, you know, for, for the EI solutions team for winning that project and Joe, because it, you know, it, it really put me in a different mindset and perspective in my life. Um, and I also think it, the, the project itself did a lot for the industry. I mean, just, it really validated renewables and kind of thrust them into a much big, a bigger piece of what the public look at. Yeah. So for those who are unfamiliar and to not go through every single step of your career, EI solutions was bought by SunTech. You naturally went to SunTech, had a thriving career there where you guys became the world leader in solar modules at a time where really SunTech was the breakout first true Asian superpower solar module manufacturer to, to break into the United States. I remember running my little company in, in Monterey, California, when I got, I got a call as a local, local installer from this guy, Ed Russell, who was just like, oh, you got to buy these, like these fancy solar panels from Asia. They're best price. And thinking, I don't know if this is ever going to work, but this has got to be the future. You know, I, I was on the outside looking in, trying to decide, do I buy these solar panels? Talk about being on the inside, looking out at watching the industry evolve into, into sort of the next phase of growth. Yeah. I mean, I think that at SunTech, another big transition from, for my career, it also kind of coincided with the growth of the utility scale solar business, um, because that was, you know, the utility scale business wasn't really existing then. And, you know, it was actually at SunTech, I was, the, I was running technical, you know, engineering services and project management for, for SunTech. And that's when I kind of transitioned out of projects and into business development, because it was at that time, the utility scale business was, you know, not very desirable. The, the DG business at SunTech, you know, the pallet by pallet, container by container business was really lucrative for a module manufacturer at the time. You know, the supply and demand of modules was, was in favor of the manufacturer. And this utility scale business was kind of, you know, this, this, these big, huge, risky, not very profitable looking projects on the outside. And so as SunTech, you know, was growing and growing, you know, they, they kind of gave myself and a, and a few other of us an opportunity to pursue the utility scale market. And SunTech, you know, had a, had a pretty good technical background, right, as a company. And it also you know, gave people a lot of latitude, perhaps even some, too much in some cases, you know, myself included. You know, it was at SunTech that we really started to figure out what a project transaction had to look like, though. And the reason why we did so well in the utility scale business at SunTech was, you know, we identified pretty early on that project finance was going to be a driver in the business and that a module manufacturer could just differentiate themselves by, by providing a product that was not just a product, but a guarantee with a security that could allow an EPC contractor to wrap a product that could then allow project finance to occur. 
So, yeah, the reason why yeah, the SunTech utility scale business was successful is that we were the first ones to really provide performance guarantees, delivery guarantees, and we, and we, and we would back those by letters of credit or bonds. And that made the whole thing kind of hang together in the utility scale business. And we could sell this, you know, pretty, you know, a very, very uniquely differentiated product at a time when, you know, selling modules by pallet or by container was really profitable. We were selling, you know, many, many, many containers worth of modules. And in, in some cases at less, you know, a, a, you know, a lower price than that pallet by pallet. But lo and behold, you know, what we had done at, at SunTech is we had locked up hundreds of megawatts of long-term contracts that were really non-cancelable. They had been project financed. And then just, you know, the market, the cost of goods sold just bottomed out underneath. And what we ended up with is years and years of unbelievably profitable module deals there. You know, as as that container and those pallets were, were shipping for, you know, 80, 90 cents, you know, we were still selling, you know, tens of megawatts at a dollar twenty or a dollar thirty. Amazing. Yeah. I saw that from the inside like a few years later when I got to Trina and we sold a one year ahead contract payable at the end of the year at 98 cents to solar city and just gave them 365 day terms. I think we're far enough out now that I can talk about this, but 365 day terms on like, a, like five or six or 10 megawatts of, po- of panels at 98 cents. Yeah. And by the end of that year, like the module prices were in the seventies and solar city was happy to pay it because yeah. they literally made, they made money on that money for a year. That's a really, man, that's a really cool story. I don't think I've, I, I don't know that I've ever had anyone actually say, Here's how we did this in the way that you just did. So thank you for that. That's a re- that's really keen insight on some of the early things. And I think that we are still at a place, not just in utility scale, but certainly DG and certainly what we talk about mobility, where those kind that kind of like what I call idea sex, being able to apply something that worked in one area to another area is still nascent. Like it's still, there's still opportunity to leverage those things the same way that Jigger and you all did with PPAs for the industry, like pulling it in from uh, from the oil and gas industry and from the wind industry. So that's really incredible. One of the things that I remember from SunTech days that I think Dan talked about, uh, I know Marco talked about, but like I remember sitting at my, my role as a project developer at DRI and the SunTech team came in and presented us, I think it was called the Gemini product, right? It was like the first module directly mounted to a square torque tube yeah. tracker, right? That's the Reli- the Reliathon product, actually. Reliathon, that's yes. right. That's right. I remember thinking Leviathon. <laughs> I am one of the patent holders of the Reliathon. I still no think. Shit. I think. I still think it was the best idea that never actually went anywhere. But you know, that's probably just I because I have my name on it, and I'm I'm biased. You know, my experience is that. There are a lot of tools that we are either implicitly or explicitly learn from these experiences where we get to see how people think about putting businesses together. And eventually we're lucky uh, if we're lucky or, or diligent, we get to places like you as a CEO of a company and we get to reflect back on what tools and skills did we learn and, and add to our toolkit. I'd love to hear if you have a clear idea around what tools from those times at EI and and SunTech helped you as you were going into NextEra. You know, you just talked about how to put deals together, talked about how to yeah. think about product product differently. What I learned at both EI and SunTech was, was, you know, how to address something and scale something that, you know, didn't exist in that organization, right? I mean, at, at EI, we, we really didn't have, you know, a large ability to execute and integrate on the EPC side. At SunTech, obviously, there was this, this growing utility scale market 
And then at NextEra, you know, DG did not exist for NextEra. And, you know, DG was, you know, a very controversial topic within NextEra, candidly. Yeah. Also, um, when I started in that in 2013, that, you know, NextEra is used to making, you know, three, four, five hundred million dollar transactions. And, you know, and, and rightfully so, they were, they were quite content doing that. And, you know, along comes DG making, you know, five, eight, twelve million dollar transactions, you know, and not too dissimilar at Suntech. You know, how, how do we, you know, take something within this company that is kind of a, a, a nascent area or an ignored area and, and make something big out of it? And it's fun. I mean, you know, at Suntech, you know, the fighting the fight to get, you know, liquid, liquidated damages to LDs and same thing, fighting the fight at NextEra to go do a four megawatt rooftop project in New Jersey. You know, what, uh, there's there's a lot of like, you know, why, why are we going to put time into distributed generation when we can go develop a 500 megawatt wind farm and sell it to AAA credit? So I think a lot of folks are in that position right now. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll point out like the first thing that comes to my mind is our friends at Safari who got bought by PPL. Now, where they were like in their market dominant, they are a very small line item for a big utility. Yeah. That's happening in dozens of transactions in our industry right now. What advice would you have for those guys that are now fighting for resources and they never had to fight for resources or justify their existence? I mean, I don't, I don't know if I have great advice. I mean, I, you know, the, the best thing you do is, is you figure out a way to make it successful and you figure out a way to, to show a tremendous amount of value. And that's not, that's not a revolutionary piece of advice, right? I mean, but what we did do at NextEra is we tried to get ahead of policy. And that was, you know, a point in my career, I think, you know, uh, as I think about, you know, figuring out how to build things well, you know, and, and, and at scale, like we did at Google, and then figuring out how to, to, to put projects together so they were financeable was really SunTech. You know, but then at NextEra, it was really figuring out how to follow policy was where we, we, we found the most value. And, you know, I can, I can recall pretty vividly, you know, as we got ahead of some markets, specifically some community solar markets on the greenfield side. And we went out there and developed 100 megawatts of five megawatt projects at a time. And lo and behold, the NPV of those projects collectively was a whole lot more than the NPV of a big, big, big project because, you know, these were, these were double digit IRRs. And, you know, it was where we said, hey, we, from an NPV standpoint, we can, we can create a lot of value here with some smaller transactions. You know, it was then that, you know, utility scale markets were starting to get a lot of pressure on the top from, from capital, um, as, as capital became more comfortable with, you know, not only the technology, but the markets, it started to depress the returns. And DG hadn't found that in 2013 at NextEra. Um, and, and policy's always been a great thing to kind of stand up returns. Two things I want to point out here. The first is for anyone who maybe has not been in project development or finance, NPV is net present value. It's basically bringing back to today's terms, what that entire future stream of cash flows would look like if we if we discounted it back to today. That's in the present value in a nutshell. And what Matt is saying is that they found a way to demonstrate to the stakeholders at NextEra that there is a way to package these higher profitability, smaller jobs into portfolios with a net present value that would actually pull the returns up for one of the strongest return dividend yielding utility stocks in the history of the United States. And that's a compelling argument. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, we built a, we built a really good case about, you know, GNA to how much, how many people you pay for every day and, you know, the cost of running a business on a day in and day out basis that we could invest, you know, in people and development and, and, and land 
Um, and we could return a tremendous amount of value. I mean, we at NextEra over the seven years I was there, we, we put together almost $2 billion with the distributed generation deals into our DG1 Hold Co. We financed it several times in you know, north of $300 million. So they were, they were good quality financeable deals. We slowly built the case that, you know, look, you know, if six of us can return this value, 12 of us can return that. You know, and if 12 wow. of us could return this value, 24 of us could re- return that. And so, you know, year in and year out, you know, we would look ahead and, you know, and the key to that for us at NextEra was, you know, get ahead of the markets. From our standpoint in DG, don't rely on M&A. We had a, we, you know, I had a thriving M&A team. We did a, we did a great job, you know, in some respects on M&A, but we did a much better job on Greenfield developing value. And- That's surprising to me. That, I've never heard anybody say that. And I've talked to a lot of folks at NextEra. That's really interesting. And for those who don't know, M&A is, mar- is um, mergers and acquisitions. Essentially, it's the broad term we use in the solar industry for a team that goes out and buys projects that are already in development, usually at a NTP or notice to proceed or like a ready to build stage of a project. And what Matt is saying is they found a lot more value because they had the skill set to go out and find, I'm guessing, find some land guys and start developing greenfield stuff. Yeah, we actually got, you know, we commandeered some of the land folks from NextEra. And, you know, obviously, oh, right. Some yeah. of the utility guys. Yeah. So there's, you know, NextEra has, you know, a massive, massive land department. I mean, you know, a massive, you know, dozens and dozens, I mean, if not hundreds of people. And we had a great champion in our business named Matt Handel there, who's, you know, an absolute, yeah, I mean, yeah. superstar, uh, a mentor and just like a, an incredible person. But he believed in our business a lot. Armando Pimentel, who is the CEO of the, or the energy resources, the unregulated business there, was also a believer in our business. And so we kind of, you know, weaseled a few resources out of the land group. Um, we went out and acquired some land and proved the the greenfield value. I mean, we also we did some early partnerships that were also valuable. But you know, we start we we really pushed the fact that we could go out there and develop this. And not only could we develop these sites and these projects, uh, you know, and create a lot of value for the company, but we could also you know create a lot of customers. And this was kind of right as the virtual power. Uh, the BPPA, the contract for difference business, was starting to become a real thing in utility scale. That you were selling these these swap deals um, in, in the wholesale markets to the to the Amazons and the WalMarts and the Verizons of the world. And DG was a great place. You know, it was a great place to do your first deal with a corporate. And Community Solar was one of the great transactions. I mean, Community Solar is just a layup of a deal. I mean, for any corporate out there, it's like you could buy you could buy hundred dollar coupons for eighty five dollars. You know, that's that's a great business. Um, I, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, although I think it would be a really fun, like you and I should probably just do like a tactical Tuesday on some of the, on some of the sleeves rolled up, like understanding of the mechanics of this stuff. But what does that mean for the layperson buy a hundred dollar coupon for 85 bucks? The way you, you know, the way you market community solar is, you know, I go to Nico's auto body and I say, you know, Nico, you can get a hundred dollar bill credit on your bill for every megawatt hour. And you're going to pay me $85 for that. And you're going to clip the $15 spread. And that's how community solar sold. And it's, you know, and, and that's it, what, and that's what it means to do. That's what the swap means basically is you. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it is, it is, I sell you something that's worth more than you pay me for it. You're, you just pay me, you know, in perpetuity, you pay me a 15 year cash stream for that and, and contract and, and you get to, you get to clip the difference every single time your bill comes. Do you remember, I presume you were involved in sort of in the, the ideation on this. Do you remember when, that moment clicked in your brain and you go, wait a minute, we can build a massive business for next era on this. I don't actually know that. Um, mm. I, I, it was, it was such, you know, a day in and day out, you know, slog to get to build that organization with, with the colleagues that I had. I mean, we, we, 
um, a, a really, really great. And it's just, I can't say enough about how good of a company NextEra is. I mean, it is, you know, the, they are, it is, we've all worked at companies where, you, you know, the more you peel back the onion, the more alarming it gets. And I can tell you that, you know, when you work at NextEra, the, the more you peel back the onion, the more you're just impressed with the organization from top to bottom. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's, that was my experience selling to NextEra. So I can definitely. Yeah, I mean, I was never introduced to somebody that didn't impress me more than the last person. It was always from, you know, I mean, all the way up the chain and it was coming down from the top. Like, you know, I don't, I won't mention names here because there, there's definitely people that we don't need to disclose on the podcast in terms of where they sit in the organization. But I, I got to get Matt Handel on. I haven't, I, I definitely needed to see if he'll come on. It's hard to get next on the show. You can't get, yeah, next is not, not big public talkers, but if you can ever get Matt Handel on, I, I guarantee you one, it would be insightful and it would be um, about as entertaining as it can possibly be as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a different name I want to throw in the mix. I mentioned earlier, and he, he stands as a person that has had a tremendous amount of influence and friendship for you in a, over a long period of time. Tell me when you first met Topher Wood. Oh, Topher Wood and I, so uh, there, was a, there was a moment in time when uh, SunTech and MMA, which then had become Photowatio, um, we had created a joint venture. And that joint venture had signed a power purchase agreement with Austin Energy for a 20 megawatt project. You know, this, this project, by the way, like, you know, lived like a hundred lives. And I think it finally got built you know, a decade later. Probably. As they do. So the SunTech Photowatio joint venture was, was truly a lesson in like what joint ventures should never look like. And I will never, I won't go into the, the, the details of how, <laughs> of how absolutely awful that joint venture was from like an, an alignment of interests and just, just the general way it was handled. But you know what? Like Topher and I were in charge of the EPC side of it. We were in charge of picking contractors, and we would sit in a back room and write EPC and RFP docs and write RFQs, and we were running the process, and we hit it off. You know, this was just about to be 13, 14 years ago. We had a blast. We ran an RFP. We got to meet a bunch of big EPCs. We got to market this big project, and, and he was just, you know, Somebody, yeah, you just meet somebody uh, and you meet people and you just get a lot of energy from being around them. I, Topher is one of those guys that just, you know, I, I talk to him three times a day, you know, and he gives me a, he, he just fires me up. We're really in sync uh, on, on a lot of things, not certainly not everything, but, you know, on a lot of things. What do you feel like back then that carries through to now was Topher's superpower? He's off the charts, right? I mean, he's, he, he just, he sees, yeah. he sees where things are going to end up, you know, People like me, like I need to kind of go through a lot of iterations and, and, and you know, go through it. And then I see where things are going. Oftentimes, you know, Topher sees where they're going to go uh, almost instantly. And, and instinctually, it seems. Yeah. And, you know, just kind of sees where things are going. Yeah. Like I, I brought up, you know, we should build this mobility business um, to him a year yeah. ago. And, you know, he basically started just, you know, coming up with the business plan out of his mouth, which was exactly the business plan I had thought about for, for, for years in my own head. But you know, wow. it was it was fresh off the top of his head. And he just gets there really fast. I mean, Bobby and Bobby Batista and Tom Dotson, my other partners at Forum, they're not too dissimilar, right? I mean, just they, they just see things yeah. before you know, you kind of get to where they're gonna go and they, and they can they can just think ahead so quickly. Um, and Topher is definitely like that. Do you think that is a like some combination of pattern matching and intelligence? Is it just having seen a number of deals? What do you think contributes to that? I had this theory and it, it, it held up pretty good at Nextera as well is that, you know, people who have built things, you know, from the ground up tend to be very good at, at kind of deciphering, you know, when and where they should spend their time. 
I think going through going through that you know whole process of of a site, a customer, an interconnect, a financing, um, a permit, you know, wh- whatever that might be, you know, it, it provides you this kind of you know, it, you start to create a Gantt chart in your head. I know I, I do it to to some extent. I, I know my partners do it in a much better extent. Where I think that you know the act of building something from the ground up allows you to see whether or not you're about to waste your time on something in a much better way. How did Topher convince you to leave Nextera? He didn't. Um, I've always believed in working with people, you know, and, and that the business is going to figure itself out. You know, Topher, Tom, and Bobby, they're people I would, I would go into business with anytime and anywhere. They're, they're winners. They, they've always done well. They do right by people. They do things profitably. They do things safely. They, they treat their employees well. I mean, they're, 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 good. they're good guys, and they've had a lot of success. And, you know, after seven years at Nextera, I, it's again, it was one of the a company I could have been at, you know, for as long as I wanted to work there. And it's a phenomenal place. It was just the compulsion that I had to, to join Powerlight, the compulsion I had to leave, you know, to Nextera was the same compulsion I had to, to do this with Forum. Uh, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm in my early 40s. This is the time for me to do it, right? I, this is the time for me to take a leap and try something entrepreneurial. We didn't know where it was going to end up. You know, we, we knew we had a, a platform in, in I1, which is now Forum Energy Partners, um, to do something. But that wasn't the only plan. And we all knew that wasn't the only plan. But we didn't know what we were going to do. But, you know, I knew who I wanted to do it with. And so there wasn't a lot of, you know, you know convincing me. Uh, Topher just said, you know, we, we need to do something. We want to do something. Do you want to come over here and join us? And, you know, it was... Uh, yeah, candidly, I kind of thought about that this moment would happen for years before it even happened, you know, in some ways in my head. Hey, Warriors, if you're subscribed to my email newsletter, then you probably saw an email come through about my good friend, Sheldon Kimber, who I consider to be one of the preeminent thought leaders around how our industry can scale faster and hit gigaton level decarbonization. And while there's so much I could say about Sheldon, the thing I want you to know is that he's recently written another blog post all about the nexus of deep, deep carbonization. You see, Sheldon is the CEO of Intersect Power, which is a clean energy company that is looking at innovative and scalable low carbon solutions to customers' needs across North America and beyond. And Sheldon and his team really believe that the zero carbon industries of tomorrow will be enabled by clean electricity technologies of today. And that deep decarbonization will be enabled by the historic affordability and availability of renewable energy, which is what Intersect develops. You can learn more about Sheldon and Intersect Power. Read his latest blogs over at intersectpower.com. I would really encourage you to go take that opportunity right now. Wait, not right now. You're in the middle of a podcast. So queue it up or click on the links that we've got in the show notes. Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. You know, one of the times that we spoke early on, kind of prepping for this call, you said to me, what's going to happen in transportation will vastly eclipse solar. When did it 
begin to really form in your mind that you were, you were pretty much done with solar and you were transitioning into mobility? You know, to say I'm done with solar is, is hard because I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I think that <laughs> it's, it's in your bones. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's now hard coded, you know, somewhere, somewhere in my, my DNA, but every year, I mean, one, one of the great things that Nextera does, and again, I can't say enough good stuff about the company is every summer you have to go back and say, where, where are you going with your business? And, you know, for distributed generation is everything on the distribution system. Um, and so distributed generation was, was a pretty wide band at the time over there. And, and it didn't take long, you know, to see that electrification was going to be the thing, right? That, that electrification was going to be the next new big thing. And that, you know, solar has you know, obviously matured immensely, right? I mean, you, know, you just look at the returns of the projects, you look at the scale of the, of the business, you know, it's a really mature business. But you saw mobility, you saw, you know, not only you know, policy tailwinds, right? You see LCFS in California, which was kind of, you know, the low carbon fuel standards, cap and trade, you know, it's kind of like a wreck for electrification, if you will, and, and a few other things. But you saw the policy where it was going. And then, you know, what we didn't have back in the day when we started in Solar Nico was you saw ESG too. I mean, you saw the corporate pressure, scope three emissions, you just, you know. Yeah. And then you, you, know, you see things like in California, like a mandate of, of you know, uh, of dredge trucks being uh, zero emission by 2035. I mean, you're talking about a 20 plus billion dollar market there just being mandated. And that doesn't yeah. even count, you know, the, the, the big shippers um, who want to do this for their investors, right? You know, on the ESG side. So you just think about across the board, right? I mean, you know, how many vehicles there yeah. are, the, the, the distribution system and the, and the upgrades that are going to have to happen across the utility system. There's just going to be an immense amount of capital that has to be deployed in electrification, and it's going to be it's going to be a it's going to be a monster. It's going to be great for the world, but it's going to be just a huge endeavor on many many fronts, from development to capital to policy to how the yeah. utilities handle it to, to to land development. I mean, it's just going to be it's going to be a, a massive undertaking over the next couple of decades. So you're sitting at Forum Energy with some really smart guys who definitely get infrastructure and you're looking at these different vectors. Could you tell me a bit about your path then to becoming CEO of what is now Forum Mobility, which at the latter part of 21, you guys sort of came out of stealth mode and you are in an all out sprint to do a thing. Tell me about how you decided where to point the arrow. Yeah. I mean, early in 21, you know, we, we knew that we wanted to do something in the space. We knew that this is the direction that things were going to go and that if we were going to you know, develop a development business, <laughs> that this was the spot that we wanted to point the arrow in. And so we started looking hard at the market. You know, we, we, we took a look uh, you know, alongside some OEMs. We took a look at a few technologies. Um, and then we just really started to try to figure out where did we want to spend our time? Again, you know, kind of going back to our project side, I, you know, I've, I've always been a big believer that, you know, kind of, where you spend your time and why is is pretty important. I you know, even go back to you know, origination and sales. I, I think that qualifying is the is the number one trait uh, of a good originator or salesperson. It's you know, knowing where and when to spend your time. So we 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 did that. We thought really really hard. You know, over you know the early part of twenty one is you know what do we want to do? Do we do we want to do public charging? Do we do want to do medium duty? Do we want to do light duty? Do we want to do municipal fleets? You know, who else was in the space? Um, again, kind of taking back to you know what we had to do at strategy at Nextera um, every year, and, and just kind of thinking you know holistically about 
capital and policy and mandates and ESG and you know, where are things going to go? We were lucky enough to coax Rob Kelly, um, who, who's our head of business development out of Ampli. He was one of the co-founders of Ampli, which is a really successful um, startup that just got sold to BP, um, another obvious ventures uh, company, one of our backers. Andrew Beebe once again, and, and Rob, yeah, you know, Rob had done um, the charging as a service business there, and done a, done a great job. Um, and and we were lucky enough to coax him over and join us. And you know, through a few you know engagements that we had in the space, you know, we really came across ports, and we thought a lot about ports and 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 how goods move in and out of ports, and what has to happen to get goods to move in and out of ports, and what has to happen to get those to move with zero emissions. And the complexity of ports and the complexity of this market, we thought, wow, there's just there's there is there is a multi-billion-dollar opportunity just here in electrification. And there's a lot of nuances with this market that we're we're tackling um, around the heavy-duty truck market in and out of ports. That you know, we really wanted to focus. We wanted, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff about going, you know, casting a wide net. Um, but for us, we really wanted to nail this, you know. And what we're doing is we're nailing, you know, a, a kind of a closed loop. Um, you know, fleet and charging as a service combination that I think is uh, applicable off, across multiple verticals um, over time. And I definitely see our company evolving. But for now, you know, we're going to focus on this because, you know, I, I think there's a, a huge opportunity, obviously, with force. I mean, there is a mandate to electrify drainage trucks. There's also a near term, there's going to be a near term registry um, where drainage trucks have to register, which is going to cause some attrition um, out of the registry that's going to mandate zero emission vehicles to come online in and out of ports sooner. There's also just you know, an environmental justice piece to ports that's really important to us and, and me and our investors that ports are typically in not the best air quality places. They're not in the best areas. And you know, us being able to electrify not only the areas of ports, but in around distribution systems, like there, there's a really cool story there. And hopefully we can make the communities and the truckers' lives a lot better. You know, when you're steeped in a thing for as long as you have been, it's easy to kind of rush past a few of the core under, understanding pieces. And for most folks listening to Suncast, they aren't familiar at all with probably with, with transport or ports or how they work. So if, if it's okay with you, I'd like to back out to 10,000 feet and ask a couple of simple questions. What does drayage mean and why is it important to the overall port ecosystem? Pretty simple, right? Your container full of Amazon goods shows up in Oakland or Long Beach, and that container gets taken off of a ship, and it gets put onto the back of a truck, and that goes to a distribution center. From the time that gets put onto the back of the truck and that goes to the distribution center, that is the dray. That is the lane. That the, that is the movement of that container from the port to the distribution center, and that is drayage. And you know, twenty thousand trucks a day do this in California, and they go back and forth and back and forth in and out of ports. And what's the average distance that that truck is traveling? Anywhere from a couple miles out to 75 miles a day um, on, on one-way route. So, um, and, and, and even further, sometimes there's, there's you know, certain lanes that go from Oakland to Reno. But, yeah. but there's a lot that go from Oakland to Tracy. There's a lot that go from Long Beach to Ontario. And back. And back. It's back and forth, back and forth. Does that truck do multiple trips a day or is it usually just like one route? It does multiple trips a day. Oftentimes, you know, two, three, four trips a day in and out of ports. And what's interesting about the business is that, you know, 75% of the people who do those trips in and out of those ports every day are independent operators. They are one man or woman trucking shows. And a lot of what you hear today is about the big fleets and some of the big moves that are happening. But, you know, there's this whole other market out there 
of independent truckers who are going to be forced to leave behind their combustion trucks and get into a zero emission mm-hmm. truck. And how to do that equitably is a really important problem to solve. And is that where forum mobility comes That's in? That's right. Okay. So it's not like Uber for Dreyage. It is uh, almost like, I don't know if you're familiar with Andrew Krulowitz, what they're doing with Flux, but like creating a financing product to help this 75% of the industry equitably transition to electric mobile mobility. That's right. Yeah. It's it, holy moly. Yeah. You know, there's, there's gotta be a solution for everybody in this. Mm. I mean, there's gotta be a solution for a host of reasons, right? We, we need our goods in and out of ports. I mean, I, you know, our timing around this business on the, on the PR side has been interesting because you just see how much, you know, port congestion is a problem and we're faced with, you know, over the next decade, you know, less and less trucks being able to access ports because they are older or dirtier or they have too many miles on them. And how are we going to get that market to change? And how is the infrastructure going to get built? You know, um, not only for the ports, but you know, as these as the goods move from distribution center to distrib- uh, to, to homes. I mean, you know, the whole thing is transitioning to electrification. Is just you know, you're talking about gigawatts upon gigawatts of distribution load in California being being put towards electrification and and thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of charging infrastructure being developed. There's many, many billions of dollars that have to happen, you know, just around the yeah. transportation of the goods we buy, let alone the school buses and police cars and the cars we drive. It's it, it's just incredible scale. Yeah. But the problem is inherently that you are solving when you decided where you're going to focus your time and attention is effectively the financing mechanism for this just transition it's it's a financing mechanism but it's also an infrastructure mechanism you know we there okay. is there is uh no shortage of of infrastructure and, and technology that is very centric to this yeah. business that has to be developed in conjunction with you know the capital that has to come to it so it's it's, it's a lot of things it's you know when, when we think about the product that we're developing it's you know it's a financial product for sure but there's also you know a software component to it and there's also an infrastructure component to it i mean again yeah, you just think about the scale of, of charging infrastructure. Um, it's not as simple as putting a few chargers in the ports. There's not enough power within the ports to even come remotely close to doing this. You know, it's a, it's a much bigger problem to solve than that. This is something I want to randomly ask because I know we haven't talked about it. And I've been thinking about it a lot here at Suncast. We did a series on green hydrogen. And there's a lot of questions around whether hydrogen is actually going to have, and especially in California, anything to do with the transportation economy. Lots of folks have said that if and when it does, it'll be long haul. Do you see other elements of, you know, f- of fuel coming into this that, that contribute to or kind of tie to this electrification piece and in particular green hydrogen? Yeah, for us, for Drage, you know, our bet is going to be on batteries um, for our company. You know, we, we made that decision. We're going to develop our infrastructure around that. You know, I think that to the extent that hydrogen plays a role in it, I, you know, I'm not an expert enough on hydrogen. I've, I've listened to a few of the podcasts and I would say that, you know, from what we've heard, um, and this is anecdotally, so I have no you know, great background to, to, to qualify the statement, but that, that there's hydrogen is going to play a bigger role in, you know, things like steel um, and some of the manufacturing processes before it's going to play a role in transportation. You know, and for us, we, we do know one thing that in the near term around the zero emission transition around ports, that there isn't going to be a scalable hydrogen product to address the near-term needs of it. You know, when you look at CARB's total cost of ownership, California Resource Board, by the way, CARB, you know, they're betting that the battery electric is going to be the proper application as well. You know, there's a, a lot of good story studies, uh, Luskin and UCLA and 
and, and the port of Long Beach here. I'm actually down in Long Beach at the port today. We feel pretty good about our bet. The batteries are going to be the, the proper application for this particular market. You know, but hey, like there's yeah, I, when you talk about transportation and socks and knocks, I mean, I, I hope I hope every single uh, zero emission technology out there can uh, can come to fruition. Matt, you know, what I'm hearing a lot lately, uh, and I bet this is true for you. I just want to check in and kind of get a sense of this. The number one problem in the solar industry and number one problem in, in most of the businesses that I'm consulting with is talent. Given that it's hard enough to get folks into the solar industry. What is your experience now a year on with getting talent for the electrification <laughs> sector? And what is it that you're, you know, where do you see a deficit? What kind of people do you see that are needed? Boy, I mean, I think that uh, it's going to take a, a, a risk taker, I think, right now. I mean, you're, it's so early, right? I mean, it, yeah, there is so many parallels to solar in 2005, 6, and 7, and right now in electrification of transportation. You know, just just the way the market is behaving. You know, OEMs becoming developers, technology companies acting as EPCs. Like, you know, so all these same things that we saw, you know, 15 years ago are happening here. And I'll just say, you know, on the talent side, you know, getting getting people to leave, you know, the renewables business. Which uh, I mean, there's no better time to ever be in renewables than now. I mean, the market is booming. You can write your own ticket if you have you know, any level of experience and success. So for us, you know, getting people into uh, electrification and mobility and out of renewables is very, very hard. It, it, it takes somebody, you know, I, I can tell them about our business, but they're going to have to get excited about it. I, you know, they're going to, they have to do what we did and, and, and just want to do this, right? Which is, you know, we've been lucky enough to recruit a team that everybody on our team has want, wanted to get into electrification and then when we've met, we've, we've made that match, but we've not talked to anybody out of renewables. <laughs> well, the cool thing is that, you know, the thousands of people listening to this right now, I would wager that you're listening right now because you possibly are thinking about going to work for Forum and you did a search on Matt and Forum and you came up with this episode. So I hope that you've gotten a sense of their, of their company and culture. But uh, let me just put a pin in the fact that if you're looking at getting out of renewables because you see what Matt saw, which is electrification is going to be bigger than solar and it is the next wave. And you like being out of the head of wave, like the surfers that many of us are, you'd be hard pressed to find a better culture uh, and a better, I'll say C-suite of legit, like diet in the wool, hardworking infrastructure folks. So I don't know yeah. if that's helpful for you guys, Matt, but it's, it's really difficult for folks to find good culture. Like you said, with that roofing company that you you regretted going to, but it ultimately led you somewhere, right? Yeah. Success leaves clues, folks. And you've heard over the last hour plus about the way that serendipity has followed Matt's career. And it's, you know, it's remarkable for, I think it's remarkable for anyone to get a chance to jump in with the kind of team that you guys are crafting. And you really are, you really are just like pulling people, plucking them from very, successful positions like Rob Kelly and creating a dream team. And it's in an area that I never even knew existed. Yeah. Many people listening didn't, didn't know what Dre meant or, <laughs> or that it existed. So it just goes to show, like you said, not only you, but Topher and the team there are thinking ahead, like way ahead of the curve. And that, in my experience, having known Topher for a long time, has served Topher very well. Yeah. I mean, in, you know, you have Leanne Den, who just joined us, um, and Kim Oster mm -hmm. and Rob Kelly, and obviously Tom Topher and Bobby. And it's a good place to come and execute, right? We, 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 you know, we have a long career of just executing. We, we hope that that differentiates us in a, in a place where there's a lot of talented new companies starting up 
and mobility and electrification. There's there's a lot of you know we hope that the fact that we've built you know businesses, we've built financeable portfolios, we've built projects, we've built power guard projects in the desert. Yeah, we've been doing this a long time and, and that we can just execute. So, you know, our, I, I think our culture is centered around that. It is, you know, just get it done. You know, you know don't be above anything. And, uh, and hopefully we're going to build something that's you know, incredibly meaningful here. When you think about the impact that mentors have had on your life, you've listed a lot of folks already in this episode. Does anything stand out to you as a particularly strong lesson or takeaway from your career and how a mentor particularly pushed you in one direction or another that made an impact on you? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I've had a lot of mentors that I, I, you know, I can't, I just been very, very fortunate to grow up in a business that grew very, very quickly. And I think that's afforded yeah. by, you know, a lot of opportunity. You know, like I said, Joe Banga played a huge role. Um, but yeah, I, I think if there's mentors and, and, and there's people who fundamentally change the lens you see the world through, I think. Yeah. yeah, BB did that for me. Um, you know, when BB, you know, got me into EI Solutions in, in 2006, you know, I saw the world differently. You know, I continued to see the world differently because of Andrew. I also say that Matt Handel at Nextera, you know, they they both you know changed the way I saw the world, and I think that's you know a a different level of mentorship, right? When you are with somebody and, and you can learn a lot of lessons from them, you can learn how to approach problems, you can learn how to approach people, you can learn how to approach you know, a lot of things. But then when you see the world through a completely different lens, I mean, that that's where, you know, I, I see, you know, Andrew and Matt, you know, playing a huge role in my life. I'm just, you know, I now have a different perspective on things for having met them. And so, yeah, they, they, they played a, a massive role in my life. Similarly, just kind of stepping back and look at the industry as a whole, you have had a chance from your career to see around corners. Is there anyone that you think is really at the, on the utility scale side in particular, or on the solar in, in solar industry that is for you, like challenging the status quo or looking around corners. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, obviously, I mean, you know, next era pushes the envelope in some ways, but you know, I, I think that the folks at intersect push it in a different way. I mean, you know, just, you know, Sheldon's oh, yeah, push Sheldon. around short, yeah. Short-term contracts and hydrogen. You know, I, I think there's a bigger look forward there than, than a lot of folks um, mm. going on. So I see, I see a lot um, in those two places. I mean, a funny story. I met AD Kimber before I met Sheldon. I just remember, you know, hearing about Sheldon when I had met Arno and and, and, and hearing about the business that was being built at Recurrent and, you yeah. know, this ex-Calpine guy that was, you know, really pushing the envelope over there. But I, I remember AD, his wife, you know, as the first kind of resource PV sys slash PV watch analyst at Powerlight. And I remember what? their yellow, their, yeah, their yellow Labrador that was always sitting and, you know, the desk was there. So, yeah. The, but his the wife family, worked at Powerlight? Yeah. The, the, I, I have no the Kimber, idea. Yeah, the Kimber family has been has been a renewable family um, for well for as long as I've known them. So, golly, that's fa- that's a what a what a funny um, segue I didn't anticipate that you'd say intersect and um, and that his wife worked at Powerlight. That's fun. I've known Sheldon for a long time, and I had no idea that his wife worked at Powerlight. That's cool. Similarly, what about on the transportation side or the mobility side? Who are you watching? I mean, I think there's a lot of really really cool stuff. I mean, I, I think that yeah, you know, w- one thing again that's yeah you know, we're watching that. You, know, you weren't watching back at the beginning of solar is is the corporates right i mean you you're looking at a lot of you know companies like amazon and companies like walmart um, making scope 3 emission pledges you know you know shipment carbon free shipments within our space i mean i think you you're starting to see a lot of talent you know i know that there's some some recent companies that have started um you know i think terawatt's doing a lot of really cool stuff over there 
and, and a team. I think they've, 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 they're building a business and they're capitalizing their business in a very cool way. And, um, you know, it seems like they're bringing a lot of talent in over there. Um, I know that there's some other folks um, who, who may or may not want me to mention their names who are getting into the space from, from the renewable side um, that I think are going to do a phenomenal job. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I think it's, it's exciting to see some of, you know, the, not only the talent on, on, you know, kind of management teams and management side, but, you know, the, the, the investment side has been um, really, really supportive. I mean, you know, in terms of raising capital, for both us, you know, at the corporate level and on the project level, I mean, we just seen you know, the the amount of excitement um, in, in the markets from the capital providers has been has been really really cool to see. And I think there's a lot of you know people putting money to work, you know, in these ESG driven funds, uh, you know, or ESG driven LPs, and these funds are, are 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 pushing things. And it's you know, I think about my kids, and you know, it's it's really cool to see you know capitalism working in the way that it is now um, with you know these funds raising, you know, at first hundreds of millions of dollars and now billions of dollars. And the mandate is, you know, just go do good stuff with it. Go build things that are good for the world with it. That That is the, you know, the first requirement. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of really, really cool stuff happening in electrification at, at you know, a ton of levels, um, you know, not only just technology, but, you know, capital management teams, et cetera. So it's, 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 a, it's exciting to see what's going on in the space. You've given a treasure trove of advice, but you're now in, as you pointed out, your first entrepreneurial role. Last year plus has been, I'm sure, um, an all-new experience for you. What advice would you have for those who, like you, are in the throes of startup life and who, perhaps, like you, have small children? <laughs> yeah, just like, uh, just be prepared to, you know, not not sleep incredibly well, I would say, just in general. Um, you know, despite, mm. yeah, with, with the, with the one-year-old or the three-year-old, you know, in the middle of the night and then you add in, you know, did I set up payroll correctly? Did I actually, you know, sign the, the, the document that I needed to have benefits set up? I, I think it's just, you know, my, my advice would be find a lot of people to talk to and by all means, get out of your own way and, and pick up the phone when you need help. There's something that I found in the last you know year of entrepreneurial life is that, you know, the, the complexity or importance of the task does not necessarily correlate to the time you spend on it. And that, you know, there are things that are going to eat up a tremendous amount of your time, like payroll or like yeah. you know, website content. Um, you know, not saying that that's not important, but you know, you're, you're, you're on one hand trying, trying to raise, you know, tens of millions of dollars of capital. And, and on the other hand, you're, you're just trying to figure out how to get a work comp policy to incorporate into your payroll service, you know, and, yeah. and they might actually take the same amount of time, and the one thing I'm not a particularly adept at doing is picking up the phone and asking for help on some of that, you know, kind of day-to-day administrative stuff. And I, I probably shot myself in the foot on, on time and, you know, stress, uh, just, you know, not, not anticipating, you know, you know, starting a company has some, you know, some, there's a lot of muck to it, right? It's, it's, you know, um, there's some cool things and, you know, you get to talk to some incredibly cool people, you get to raise money, you get to talk to great investors, but boy, there is a, a, a lot of a lot of slogging to do as well. Um, and I would just say, pick up the phone. I believe that readers are leaders. And here on Suncast, we often talk about the kinds of books that our guests have read or are reading that have been inspirational or, or formative for them. Do any stand out for you that have helped you either in this sort of stage of your life or just have generally been, you know, they hold a place in the canon of, of literature that you hold important? There's actually a book that I, I, when I was looking at your website, um, I think you had put The Alchemist on there. Oh yeah, um, 
and I kind of, I, I think about that book more than I think of almost any other book. Um, mm. And I, I think it's one of those books that, you know, people get different things out of that book. And I think you, it's one of those, probably one of those books that you could probably get something different out of it based on the stage of life that you're in as well. But the, what I got out of that book when I read it is that you, your gut tells you what you should be doing and your happiness mm. is dictated by your ability to follow that. And that, you know, I think some of the biggest mistakes I've made have been, you know, you know, in my professional and personal life is, is kind of, you know, going against that little voice. And I think, mm. you know, when you do follow that little voice, you, you tend to end up in a very good spot. And yeah. You know, and so I don't know if I, I talk, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody about that book, but I think about that book a lot. I think about that little voice and our need to follow that. And, when, you know, in that I think in some part and maybe even in large part for some people that, you know, dissatisfaction comes from not following that little voice. Well, now you've had a chance to talk to thousands of people about that book. Yeah, yeah I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have their ear as we round out here. How, if for folks are so inclined, how do you like to be found? Is there a place that folks can reach out and, and get a hold of you? Yeah, I'm, I'm active in attempting to be even more active on LinkedIn at the mm -hmm. request of our PR consultant. So um, <laughs> I, I, you can find me. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. My last name is um, spelled rather oddly. So there's not a lot of L-E-D-U-C-Qs out there. And so uh, I'm, it's a great place to interact. I'm happy to answer questions. And especially, you know, your question about some of the folks starting up companies. Um, you know, uh, like I said, I've, I, I've, I have burned no shortage of hours um, trying to figure out how to do something that I probably could have, you know, asked somebody and gotten and figured out the answer in five minutes. So I'm happy to, I'm happy to pay it forward on that, especially. That is fantastic. Well, we'll link to how folks can connect with you as well as how to find forum mobility on our show notes for our website at mysuncast.com. Folks who are regular listeners are familiar how to find the show notes and all of the links therein. I'm going to end with one final question as we always do. And, you know, in this one, I expect your bold prediction to be in a different sort of tangential direction. What one thing do you see happening in the market, Matt LaDuke, that maybe nobody else is tracking besides the fact that you're in a market that many of us aren't tracking at all? What's in your crystal ball for the next 18 to 24 months? And maybe that's focused on mobility. Maybe it's more broad than that. The bold prediction is that, you know, everybody, you know, utilities and developers are underestimating the quantity of land and distribution capacity that's going to be needed to accomplish our electrification goals, not only in California here, but you know, across the United States, that, that we, are, we are going to see what we think is a big market appear even bigger, much, much bigger over the next 18 to 24 months. Well, we'll be certainly following along your journey and trying to get ahead of the electrification wave here on Suncast. Matt LaDuke, is the CEO of Forum Mobility. Man, it has been a true pleasure to finally have you here on Suncast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nico. Appreciate it. Well, there you have it, Solar Warrior, climate champion, electrification enthusiast. I hope that you adopt Matt LaDuke's motto and mantra, sprint towards growth. This was one of the conversations that I've been longing for on Suncast. And boy, did Matt deliver. Matt, thank you for the genuine transparency and authenticity with which you shared, not just your career, but all the lessons 
that have made you who you are and many more I'm sure yet to be shared. Thanks to Andrew Beebe and Joe Banga and Marco Garcia and all the people who influenced Matt in his career and all the folks that went unnamed in this story. You know who you are. Thanks for contributing to the growth of an industry. If you are like Matt, eager to keep learning, well then you, my fellow follow math, know exactly where you can find the resources and highlights from this discussion, along with social media links, the book recommendation that he just gave for Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist, and so much more in the show notes over at mysuncast.com. I would encourage you to go check it out. That's where you can find all the contact details for Matt and his team, as well as all of our past guests in more than 430, 50, wherever we're at now, episodes that we have published. Since I know you're going to be online, it would really do a lot for us if you would do one of two things, or maybe both. If you'd jump over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and leave a rating and review if you have, in fact, loved this episode or, or the Suncast podcast in general, your five-star enthusiastic review is going to help others like you find this resource and help them grow as they try to figure out where their career and and their sort of their vehicle is pointed in the clean economy. The other thing is connect with me if you haven't, DM me if you want to, but like and comment on the posts that we've made announcing this episode being released. Let Matt know that you got a ton of value from it. Please connect with Matt, connect with the forum team. It really does mean a lot and precious few in the grand scheme of things, precious few people take action on it. And uh, I know that you're an action taker. So I look forward to hearing from you. I want to thank once again, our sponsors who help make this content free for you. You can learn more about them as well as how you could partner with Suncast at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.